Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com that turned out way better than i thought when i was writing it last night i was like oh man this split this split's gonna be hard this is gonna be mark on cancer no one's gonna listen to this thank you jl that was no no that, it, it's very a team, nicely rescued it, it's a team effort so i get it Hi, everybody. Welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Mark Lewis, and I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome, so I think about healthcare from both sides at the exam table. And I'm Jean-Luc Neptune, MD. My friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. I'm also a health technology and startup investing expert, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. So JL, so nice to talk to you again, my friend. What's going on? Always good to talk to you, Mark. Uh, it's going well. I'm excited. We're cranking out uh, great episodes that we'll be able to share with our audience. Uh, we've been getting great feedback uh, from friends, so I've been excited about that and looking forward to more and more audience participation in our podcast. Yeah, nothing that I've done on Twitter has ever excited my children who are 14 and 11, but the fact that I have a podcast now is finally earning me some dad points. So that that feedback alone has been worth it. But you know, it's interesting when your kids have access to the internet. So apparently my son was showing my like my company page to one of his friends at school and that made me somehow famous, which I thought was very interesting. So I think having <laughs> I think that I think the podcast will make me extra famous. Well, listen, there's a really cool question today that I think our listeners will like and the question is what is personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in some ways, this almost seems like stating the obvious, like, isn't all medicine personal? And I mean, healthcare, you know, the business, you know, it's an industry, but medicine, and, and maybe I'm being too idealistic, medicine is the interaction between doctors and their patients. And, and that's why we went into this, right, is to help people. Yep. Yep. Um, that's what my med school application <laughs> said, but I, but I meant it. I really meant it. I know it's a uh -huh. cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason, right? So what I'm getting at is I, I find that what we do when you're sitting face to face with someone in an exam room, that feels very personal, but words matter. And the key here is the whole world word, which is personalized. Right. So maybe let's talk about that. The way we're going to talk about personalized medicine is that personalized medicine is essentially using somebody's genetic or biomarker information to make a treatment decision on their behalf. 
These could include decisions about who gets what kind of medicines or what dose they get or the interval at which they're treated. Or it might be information about how carefully somebody should be monitored because they're predisposed to a specific type of issue. And it's interesting because this is actually a very important milestone in the history of medicine. It's not happened overnight. It's been happening over a period of time. But this is a huge change in how doctors treat patients. You know, remember, up until about 100 years ago, we didn't even know what worked as doctors. You know, doctors like would try whatever they had learned from another doctor worked. Um, And, you know, the history of the last, let's say, 100 years was trying to figure out what was safe and what was effective, two key terms that we always use, what's safe and what's effective. And we were doing that more on a population basis. We were saying this medication works on this population to achieve this result. But now with personalized medicine, we're moving into an increasingly interesting space where we can start to talk about something that is safe and effective at the patient level, which is, I think, in many ways, sort of a holy grail for us, particularly the way we were trained and the time that we came up as doctors. Yeah. So for real, this is why we don't do bloodletting uh, anymore as sort of a general (laughs) approach, because it turns out, uh, and I'm a hematologist as part of my job, I'm a blood doctor. So it turns out there is a tiny proportion of the population who actually do have too much blood and they benefit from bloodletting, but the vast majority of people don't. So I know it's kind of a silly example, but it shows what you were saying is we've, we've sort of gone from taking this potentially harmful one-size-fits-all approach, and we're really using genetics to customize treatment, better living through chemistry. Oh my God, you just triggered me there. That's a great Fat Boy Slim album from the late 1990s. That's actually like when, when I'm finishing medical school, starting residency, there were a whole bunch of like British bands, you know, Big Beat, EDM, Trip Hop. So I have, I still have a lot of the CDs. Yeah. I think I know what's on my playlist tonight. <laughs> Electronica, I like it. Well, I think Electronica, I have to, uh, <clears throat> I have to praise you for your musical taste. <laughs> uh, um, so we'll, we'll leave that there uh, and, and move on. So here's how I think about this, Jail. I think about this, it's the difference between bespoke tailoring and buying an off-the-rack suit. That's what we're talking about here with mm-hmm. personalized medicine. And, and by the way, as an aside, real quick, my oncology training was at the Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. And quite famously in our community, every doctor at Mayo has to wear a suit. So I actually showed up for fellowship training thinking I'd be assigned a tailor. And I uh, was uh, a little disappointed. It was like, yeah, buddy, you better you better wait for the next sale at Joseph A. Bank because there's, there's no tailor here. Uh, so that was, that was a slight letdown. But in all seriousness, is this an approach, Jail, that, that you've seen like in your practice, in your life? Well, good question. So, you know, I, I think about my life in, in two ways, as a provider uh, of my, to my own patients, but also as a caregiver for my family. So I'd say it's been actually more relevant in my experience as a caregiver. So, hmm. you know, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2013 and is doing well now, has had no recurrences, is doing great. And as you know, breast cancer is really at the cutting edge of a lot of this personalized medicine technology and knowledge. Uh, we work with a really great doctor, a woman named Linda Vadat at New York Hospital. And what we discovered, what I came to learn, I, I, I guess I had known this before, was that there are a bunch of different receptors that you can uh, test for. Yeah. And as you test for those receptors, estrogen, pro- uh, progesterone, uh, HER2 new, depending on how you test with those receptors will determine how you're treated. And I remember Dr. Vidat like drawing these pretty complicated flow diagrams to say like, if this, then that, if this, then that. And because of the way my mother tested, she was actually HER2 negative. So she didn't actually get a treatment called Herceptin, which is an effective cancer treatment, yes. but can cause cardiac or heart toxicity. So it was, you know, very interesting to see that perspective and to, as a doctor, realize there are all these different, you know, kinds of combinations that 
you can treat in different ways. I was just going to interject that, you know, no oncologist at all now at jail would treat breast cancer like your mother's. And, and thank you for sharing that mm -hmm. without knowing whether or not these receptors are present or absent. Because you're right, those estrogen and progesterone receptors, those are for female hormones, right? Mm -hmm. And you can block those too. So it's really, really important. And, and again, it's the standard of care that we would apply this level of personalized medicine to breast cancer. Just wanted to make sure that was clear. Absolutely. So in my personal area of practice in addiction medicine and mental health, there is a lot of work ongoing, a lot of work that's been done so far that's trying to determine the efficacy of various medications for depression, anxiety, ADHD, a lot of the mental health indications. And there's actually a whole specialty field called pharmacogenomics. Pharma, the medicine, genomics, the genetics, and basically how do variations in your genetics impact the medications that you take? Certainly I've seen in my practice, Mark, you've probably seen this, you know, there are certain medications that patients respond very well to, and then other patients don't respond to at all. And it's clear that people metabolize these medications differently, respond to them at a receptor level different, uh, differently. And now as providers, it's actually hard to predict who's going to respond oftentimes. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of work going on. There are a number of companies uh, that are in the space. And I'd say at least when it comes to mental health, the, the technology is interesting. The testing is interesting, but it's really not ready for prime time yet. You know, it's, it's interesting. Some of these companies produce like hundred page reports that are chock full of information, chock full of data, very interesting stuff. But as a provider, it doesn't really help you make big decisions. Maybe at the margins, there's some information about dosing that you can potentially use, but digging through a hundred page report is just not really something that's helpful as a doctor. I feel you there, man. I mean, there's 3 billion pairs of letters in the human DNA sequence. That's going to give you a lot, a lot of data yep. to read through, especially uh, lengthy if it's not entirely clear what to do with it. So how about you, Mark? Uh, you know, in your practice, obviously, as I was alluding to before, uh, oncology is really, I think, the, the cutting edge area for the space. W how is it affecting your practice? Part of the reason we're at the cutting edge is we've been so terrible historically, as we'll <laughs> discuss. So um, happily, I think this is actually making my practice, and I'll be very careful with my words here, more precise. Mm -hmm. So let's address the elephant in the room. You're a very kind person, JL, but oncologists are not... <laughs> Well-liked, okay? And, and I get it. People hate chemo. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes I'll hear a colleague at a camper conference say something like, well, this patient didn't want chemo. Nobody wants chemo. Uh, the, the question is, can you reasonably convince the patient that they need chemo? And let's be honest, there's lots and lots of, of side effects. And, and the nastiness of that gets conflated with the doctor who prescribes it. Yeah. And, you know, to me, it's like hating the weatherman for the bad weather. You know, there's this movie you may remember with Nicolas Cage in 2005. I don't think one of his best performing films, but he's a character. He plays a weatherman and he has, you know, he's just standing there waiting for the bus and people are throwing stuff at him because they're unhappy with what happened with the weather. And the, the <laughs> oh, funny man. thing is, in that movie, the main character was actually diagnosed with cancer in the movie. He's diagnosed with a lymphoma in the movie. So that's a big part of his character arc in the film. Wow. Layers on layers. Yes, I can, um, I can definitely relate to the meteorologist because that's uh, something you can't control, but people don't like you when you, uh, when you tell them about it. So, you know, what is it that makes chemo so loathsome? I, I think it is the indiscriminate toxicity. And, you know, sometimes I'm asked to explain to my patients, I should explain to my patients, you know, how does chemo work? And I try to break it down to the very basic sort of explanation that it kills cells that are dividing. 
The problem is there are normal parts of you that are dividing right now. So quite famously, our hair grows, the lining of our mouth and our gut is replaced. Mm -hmm. Our skin mm -hmm. yep. is constantly sloughing off. Our blood cells are being remade. You remake most of your uh, blood and circulation about three or four times a year. So there's constantly this process of renewal and that's what chemo is interrupting. And you know, my dad got really heavy duty chemo in the late 80s, early 90s. And this was his phrase, which remains pretty moving to me actually. He said, the chemo seems to be incinerating the bad cells at an only slightly faster rate than the good ones. And that, you know, that hits me like a rock because that's not just my father talking. I see that even now, even though we've tried to refine it in my patients. And again, you know, for, for those of us who went to medical school and, you know, f tried to learn the history of medicine, you, you, you understand that the history of oncology comes out of the history of war. So, you know, the, the, the terminology that your father is using is almost uh, evocative of how we develop chemotherapy in the first place. You know, remember the first chemos are developed because scientists observed that mustard gas was capable of killing and destroying lymphatic tissue and bone marrow. And they said, hey, maybe this might have some benefit for cancer. We, you know, pre-World War II, there were no drugs or World War I, there were really no drugs to treat people with cancer. So Often in the case with science, we make an observation. And then what the doctors did is they went and they did experiments on mice and they showed by applying some nitrogen mustard, they were able to cause some tumors to shrink. So it's a fascinating history, you know, to think about cancer as a war within the body, but the treatments for cancer begin in war, you know? So that's a fascinating observation. It's wild. We might be able to put this in the show notes, but my favorite book about this is The Emperor of All Maladies mm -hmm. by Siddhartha Mukherjee. And it's actually the subtitle of the book is a, a biography of cancer. And he draws that through line from that realization that these weapons, these literal weapons had medical applications. It's crazy. Yeah. So I am going to sound a little bit JL, like a mad scientist in a white coat, which I realize yeah. is another stereotype of that's oncologists, okay. <laughs> but, but bear with me. I like, I love actually to test my patient's tissues. Now that is either a, a biopsy needle that has sampled a mass, a cancerous mass, mm -hmm. or sometimes it's drawn you know, through a needle into a tube from their bloodstream. I like to test it for mutations that I can target. And mm -hmm. this, is, this is the precisionalized medicine part of oncology, okay? So one other description of chemo, and this absolutely relates to your nitrogen mustard uh, analogy, is it's like napalming your lawn to kill the weeds. <laughs> and what we'd like to do is pluck the weeds and leave the good grass alone, right? Yep. So, so to be clear, we are nowhere near perfecting this process, but I have to tell you, we're getting closer. And one of the reasons we're getting closer is we are more willing to look for these things. You're never going to find something you don't look for. Mm -hmm. You miss all the shots you don't take. And, and sometimes I'll be honest, just like the report you were mentioning earlier, it's hundreds of pages long and there's not a single mutation in there that you can do anything about. But again, we're getting better and we are finding more what we call actionable mutations, mutations in the cancer that can be matched to treatment and then try to get that patient on the right medicine at the right time. So that's a lot of information to digest. Why don't we go to break and when we come back, we can tell our listeners how this might come up hopefully not in the oncology scenario, but how might come up in their next conversation with their doctor. Sounds good. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. 
And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. We're talking about personalized medicine or precision medicine, and we want to make this news you can use. How will this affect your own healthcare and possibly conversations you'll have in the future with your doctors? JL, what do you think? All right. Well, this is the part I love is making recommendations, giving uh, information that people can use. So I think we wanted to think about personalized medicine and formulate a couple of questions that I think could drive this thought process. So I think the first question that anybody should be asking if they're diagnosed with a condition, whether it's a, a cancer condition or anything else, is does your condition allow for precision-based treatment? And that really should be a question that you're comfortable with asking your provider. And Mark, do we have an example of something like that? I do. I have a personal example. So I mentioned earlier, I'm a blood doctor, but I've also, as a patient, had blood clots. Mm -hmm. And for so many years, JL, and you know this, and maybe many of our listeners know this, sort of the dominant blood thinner was this medicine called Coumadin. Mm -hmm. And Coumadin is fascinating because it worked really, really well, but... And, and the butt is key. But it had to be monitored so closely because the Coumadin had to be kept in a very exact range. Mm -hmm. So as you might imagine, you don't want things too thin. You don't want things too thick. You want Goldilocks. You want just right. Mm -hmm. And ordinarily, in, in the initial phases of prescribing this Coumadin medicine, we would follow the patient super, super closely and try to make sure that we weren't exceeding either of those thresholds. But what's fascinating is we've learned more about the pharmacogenomics you mentioned earlier. And certain people, based on how they metabolize the Coumadin, really ought to start at a different dose than other people. And there's some fascinating statistics on this where, you know, if Coumadin goes the wrong way, you can have excess bleeding risk. And if you're underdosed on it, then you have the same clotting risk you started with. And mm. either of those things actually can result in strokes. Yeah. Strokes can be hemorrhage or they can be clot. Mm -hmm. So there was an estimation that we might avoid 17,000 strokes in the United States wow. every year if we applied this precision approach to the dosing of what was then the most common blood thinner. Interesting. An important point I want to make before we go along is that there are a lot of people who use the marketing term personalized medicine or precision medicine who are often just using it in a marketing sense, right? Like we pay attention to you. We know your name when you walk in the door. But the truth is real precision medicine is understanding that Everybody's different and everybody's different sometimes in ways that can be detected in a laboratory test or some other kind of way and that we can then use to treat you in a often a better way, a, a way that's more effective, has fewer side effects. So that's what we're talking about when we say precision medicine or personalized medicine, just in case you hear something different on the TV or on the, on the radio. That's right. And the other phrase that it can be confused with, of course, is concierge medicine, mm -hmm. which is this notion that there's this doctor who's at your beck and call who, like you say, knows you by name. Um, it, that's different. That's a that's a patient experience, which frankly we would love to offer to all of our folks. Um, but what you're getting at, and what we're getting at, is the testing aspect. And you know, sometimes genetics is um, kind of a scary subject. People don't really understand what's being tested. And again, the scenarios that we're outlining, and we'll get into some of the nuances here. You can either be testing the tissues in your body, or you can be testing your own genetic makeup. 
Is there a specific mutation, sometimes called a variant, that you can be testing for? Again, that's, that tends to be more oncology, but I think we'll tend to find that more and more as we go into other uh, areas. Uh, Mark, examples maybe of some specific mutations or variants that people can test for? Yeah. So I'm going to make this very specific uh, as to how it affects patients in my practice. And again, this is trying to make me a, a better and more precise oncologist. So one phrase that we use, JL, which sounds a little weird at first, is we're trying to make every cancer a rare cancer. Now, mm -hmm. of course, that means we're trying to you know, lower the number of cases. Uh, but it also means we're trying to take a really common uh, disease like colon cancer, which affects tens of thousands of Americans every year. And we're trying to realize that, that actually that, that large number is the sum of a bunch of little subsets. And that by splitting those subsets and not lumping them all together in one diagnosis, that's how our treatments can kind of get uh, more specific. Now, again, there's a huge difference between testing a tumor and testing a person. So this is the analogy I've actually used, and I got it from my son. We were doing math together recently, and he said, Dad, you know, I learned in geometry, every square is a rectangle. Not every rectangle is a square. What that means is you can, you can test uh, a tumor, you can find a mutation that doesn't necessarily mean that you'd find it in the patient uh, as part of their genetic makeup. And, and this distinction really, really matters, JL. It comes up a lot in, mm -hmm. in counseling my patients because of, drumroll please, yep. insurance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how they go. <laughs> I mean, what discussion of American healthcare would be complete without worrying about the insurance implications? Yeah, and, and look, I mean, we, we really are always trying to keep it real, trying to be 100% uh, authentic here, what your insurance pays for really drives the services you get. So for example, pre-pandemic, you know, until recently, patients wanted televisits, but the insurance company in general, were not willing to pay for it. I think the pandemic has changed that, but I think it's a great example of something that people wanted that they couldn't get because the insurance company wasn't paying for it. So, you know, there are so many different insurance companies. It takes so long to make changes. That's why it, sometimes takes a longer than you expect for changes to happen in the healthcare system. But that is a reality that doctors live with and a doctor, a reality that the doctors suffer with as much as patients do. That's right. And the tech is moving so fast. You're right. There's this lag of, of coverage kind of coming behind. One other thing that's been really interesting, and this actually dates back to 2008, is something called the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act or GINA Act. And it's trying to do a good thing. It's trying to say that if you're tested for a genetic disorder and you yourself are, are found to have it, a hereditary condition, that you cannot be discriminated against in certain ways. You can't lose your job because of that discovery. Mm -hmm. And actually, this is really fascinating. Your health insurance premiums shouldn't change. Yep. So what's wrong with this? Well, what's wrong with it is it's, it's good, but it's porous. It's incomplete mm -hmm. because and I can tell you this myself, because this did not protect me from some financial penalties I incurred after I diagnosed myself with a genetic syndrome. So where you can still have penalties levied against you is life insurance, mm -hmm. disability insurance, and long-term care insurance, which I'll be honest with you, like being able to pay for my nursing home didn't really occur to me <laughs> when I was 30 uh -huh. and fascinated to know, do I have a genetic condition? So I just want people to understand that, you know, genetic testing specifically of themselves, not necessarily a tissue or a cancer in their body, but their, their own makeup comes with that caveat that you really want to go into it with your eyes open that yes, it can yield a lot of information. It might not actually tell you anything that is gonna change your care right now, but it could very meaningfully affect these types of insurance. And 
again, I'm not here to scare anybody. I actually think it's part of our duty jail to inform our listeners that there's this this downside to doing genetic testing if you're not prepared for that result. Sure. And, and I always like to say, you know, it's was it the Superman movies with great power comes great responsibility. So, you know, I think this technology is amazing <laughs> and is really fundamentally changing the way we treat people. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the same time, there are many, many things that come out of that new technology that we have to grapple with as a profession, as a society. I mean, we really don't want a brave new world where we're stratified by genetic risk and physiologic fitness. On the other hand, I have to tell you in real time, and this just happened this year, Okay. Uh, genetic testing is making things better in very, very scary cancers. So one of the worst cancers I treat is pancreas cancer. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I have a favorite cancer, <laughs> but this is probably my least favorite. Okay. Uh-huh. And for years, when it was sequenced, we would just get back the same cluster of what we call inactionable mutations, meaning we knew the flaws were there. We knew what was causing the pancreas to become cancerous. We just couldn't do anything about it. We couldn't find an Achilles heel that we could strike with our drugs. Mm -hmm. And as you might imagine, when you do the same thing over and over and over again, and you don't get back anything that you can treat, we just stopped doing it. We were like, what's the point? We're not going to sequence pancreas cancer the way that we look at other cancers. Mm -hmm. So just this year, it was a huge deal that we are now finding a mutation in 2% of our pancreatic cancer patients that could be treated with a highly effective, highly tolerable treatment. Got it. I know 2% sounds like a really, really low number, but when you think that we lose tens of thousands of people to this illness every year, a fraction of a big number can still be a big number. Sure. And so real quick, and this is going to quickly devolve into oncology alphabet soup, and I won't, <laughs> I, won't, I won't be offended if you roll your eyes or fall asleep, but the mutation is called KRAS-G12C, mm-hmm. and the medicine that targets it is called adagrasib, and it's actually a pill. Okay. So real quick aside, a lot of people think that all cancer treatment is intravenous and it's going to make them horribly ill. This is an oral therapy that's designed to target the specific flaw. And again, we're only going to find it by looking, but I got to tell you, all oncologists at their core are optimists, and I'm hopeful that even though this is a tiny sliver of the cancers that we treated, if it works here, that maybe we can find similar mutations doing testing in other patients. So I think we're on the brink of precision oncology, cracking open some of the traditionally hardest to treat cancers. I certainly hope so. Sure. And look, I think that's the nature of really any technology. You know, in the earliest days, you know, technology might only be useful in 2% of cases, but at some point you figure out another way to use that technology. Now you're treating 4% of cases, then eight, then 16. And then eventually everybody who's got the condition is getting the same kind of testing and targeted chemotherapy or whatever that technology may be. So I'm optimistic as well. And again, I think, you know, as somebody who finished med school in 2000, you know, think about how far uh, the oncology space has come with monoclonal antibodies, small molecules, genomic testing. I mean, it's a world of difference from 20 years ago. And what's really cool is when progress in one area bleeds over into another area. Mm. So for instance, like some of our COVID management actually comes from antibodies that we've been using for a long time in oncology. So you get this kind of beautiful uh, kind of cross-pollination going on. So don't get me wrong, genetic testing, we're still in the infancy. Some of it is still very expensive and not reimbursed by insurance. We have to be super careful what we do with the information, meaning we don't want people to be labeled in a way that's going to forever change their insurance or frankly change the understanding of their own body. The one thing we haven't talked about yet, JL, that I just want to kind of end on is we are so new in doing this that when you do the genetic testing, you can get back those variants you mentioned earlier, but they're actually tagged variants of uncertain 
significance. Mm-hmm. And what they mean is right there in the name. We don't know <laughs> yet. Right. And, and the good news is there's very, very smart people. And actually these computer databases, and now I'm really nerding out, but what happens is the information is stored there and the computer and, and, and people are, are constantly going back and looking at the mutations we found before and saying, aha, sort of the eureka moment. Now we know that's not of uncertain significance at all. Either that's completely benign mm-hmm. and we never have to worry about it, or actually it's associated with this disease, or this is the best case scenario, it's associated with a treatment that works. And I think together that what we call iterative knowledge, that constant refinement and adding to what we know, that's how medicine works. That's how it has worked for centuries. And it's kind of exciting, I'll be honest with you, if you can hear my voice, to be practicing at this moment and think that we are going to be more uh, precise sure. in the treatments we offer. And as somebody who's, you know, is an investor and has invested in a lot of technology companies, you're starting to hear things like big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning. And now it's not just doctors, it's doctors working with computer scientists, working with supercomputers, crunching huge amounts of data and really starting to discover things that, you know, 50 years ago would have been impossible to discover, but now are sort of jumping off the page. So it really is exciting. And I think we may be moving into a world where everybody gets a custom suit rather than having to get an off the rack suit. Well said. And at some point, honestly, we should do like a part two. Okay. Like update personalized medicine because it's moving so fast. And I'm actually really excited to see where it goes in other fields, in your field, in other parts of medicine. But I think this is probably all we have time for today. All right. Sounds good. So before we go, I don't have a mean tweet so much as a mean Google search. And this was my own Google search. All right. So you know how you'll type something into Google and it'll autocomplete the sentence for you? It's, it's actually called Google auto-suggest. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. You did, you did it for me. <laughs> <laughs> so so what I typed in, Jay, I was like, how can I figure out the public perception of cancer doctors? And I thought, <laughs> I know, I'll ask Google. So I put in oncologists are, and honestly, I, I should have been prepared for this, but the results were horrible. So oh. I'll read them to you in order. Okay. Oncologists are murderers. <clears throat> Yikes. Uh, oncologists are evil. Oh, boy. Oncologists are confused and oncologists are criminals. So, oh, my goodness. You know, to be honest with you, one of the many, many, many reasons I wanted to do this podcast with you is I, I want to put a little bit of a human face on, like I say, a really intimidating profession. No one ever wants to meet me. I know that. I would rather not have people in my clinic that need chemotherapy. We're just doing the best we know how to do right now. And I also know, JL, this is true. I know that history is going to judge this moment harshly because, you know, when things progress and you look back, you're like, oh, those people were so short-sighted, but this is how we're going to get better. It's personalized medicine and it's this precision approach. Sure. And, and remember, we're we're fickle as a, as a species, right? You know, I think at, a, at some point, <laughs> you know, when we've cured cancer or at least turned cancer into a not always fatal condition, you know, the auto suggest will be oncologists are geniuses, oncologists are angels, oncologists are the best Aww. people we know. So maybe that'll be the Google yeah. auto suggest 50 years from now. You, my friend, are excellent at mental health. Thank you. I needed that. <laughs> um, so on that high note, actually, that is our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Lewis MD. You can also find me on Twitter at Jean-Luc Neptune. I'm also active on LinkedIn. You can find me there. If you have a medical question or would like clarification about something medical, please ask us. You can also email us at isitserious at offscript.com or call us 
at Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO66. That's 855-283-4666. Thanks, Shale. And while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, remember that this show does not provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure you ask your doctor. So take care, everybody, and join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.